All right, so we are continuing our expository study of the book of Romans. We're in chapter 10, which is a section primarily devoted to Israel, God's plan and dealings with the nation of Israel, but also it has to do with God's work in the Gentiles as well. So I've decided to... Um, to entitle this message, How to Be Saved. You'll see why in a minute as we get into our text. So we're going to go ahead and start in Romans 10, verse 5, and read on through verse 13. But before we do that, let's just ask God's help. Lord, it is a sacred and a solemn thing to open up your word and to seek to understand and apply it. Lord, we're separated by 2,000 years from the time when this was written, and so we do ask for your grace to understand what Paul was intending when he wrote this letter to the Roman believers, and that, Lord, you would show us the bridge that we can make correct and true application of these things to our lives today. So, Holy Spirit, come and teach and enlighten in Jesus name. Amen. All right, Romans 10 verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I remember a story that Ray Steadman told. Ray Steadman was the former pastor of the Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto for many years, about 40 years. And he tells a story that he was going to the movies one day and he was sitting there getting ready for the movie to start and someone came up to him and said, hey, is, is that seat next to you saved? And he said, uh, no, but I am. And <laughs> the guy got real nervous and walked over to the other side of the theater to sit down because he was uncomfortable sitting next to Ray Steadman. And it makes me just aware that the word saved can be a real uncomfortable word for non-Christians. It makes people feel a little bit awkward, a little uncomfortable. Um, but some of the most precious evangelistic texts in the Bible use the word saved in them. Like Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Um, that's one of the precious texts that we use so often when we witness to people. And we have some of those precious texts right here. Verse 9, verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we're going to be talking about the issue of salvation and how a person is saved because that's really what Paul is getting at in this passage. The word saved or salvation appears three times. Once in verse 9, once in verse 10, and once in verse 13. And the word saved means to be rescued or to be delivered. So to be rescued from some kind of peril or imminent danger. In the Bible, when it talks about people being saved, it's talking about being saved from sin and its consequences. So it means to be saved from the penalty of sin, and we call that justification. It means to be saved from the power of sin. We call that what? Sanctification. And it means to be saved even from the very presence of sin. We call that glorification. So we have been saved, justified. We are being saved, sanctified. We will be saved, glorified. So to be saved is to be rescued from, from sin and what sin does to us. We're all born into this world fallen. Ephesians 2 says we're born children of wrath, dead in trespasses and sins, fallen by nature. All mankind needs this deliverance, this rescue from sin and the consequences being eternal judgment and everlasting hell. Those are the consequences of sin. All mankind need to be rescued and delivered. And so Paul here is telling us how that can take place in a person's life. How they can receive this deliverance. Now we need to remember that Paul's primarily thinking here about Israelites and how the Israelites need to be saved. We know that from the context. Back in chapter 9 verse 30, he says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. So here he's talking about how Israel did not attain this justification, this righteousness, because they were pursuing it by obeying the law, thinking that if they just did enough in terms of their law keeping, that they would be saved. And Paul goes on to say that, no, no, they, they missed it. The Gentiles attained it. They weren't even looking for it. The Jews who were looking for it never attained it because they were seeking to be justified through the law rather than through faith. And that's why he says in verse 3 and 4, for not knowing about God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were ignorant of God's righteousness, and so they tried to establish their own self-righteousness that God would be pleased with, that God would accept them, and by doing that they refused to subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And if you refuse to subject yourself to the righteousness of God, you cannot be saved. Because only God can give the kind of righteousness that he demands. We don't have it to give. And that's why he says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for, for righteousness to everyone who believes. So in this text, if you're a Christian, listen carefully because if you're a little fuzzy on what you should be telling people, when you're witnessing to them about how they need to respond in order to be saved, this text tells us very, very clearly. And if you're not a Christian, listen carefully because your eternal soul, your immortal soul is uh, in the balance. You can be saved if you will obey Paul's writing to the Romans in chapter 10.
If you will obey that, you can be saved. Now, verses 3 and 4. One of the earthly reasons Israel was not saved is because they were ignorant of God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own self-righteousness, and they refused to subject themselves to God's righteousness. And that's why. They wanted to have something that they could take credit in or that they could glory in. And God says, if you want to be saved, you can't take credit for anything and you can't glory in anything. You need to receive the righteousness that I will clothe you with. It comes as a gift by grace. It doesn't come as a result of your efforts, works, or anything of that sort. Law keeping. Now, in verse 4, there's four words there that are important that Paul is going to take up and, and develop and expand on in verses 5 to 13. And those words are Christ, righteousness, everyone, and believe. You're going to see those same words keep reappearing in the next paragraph, verses 5 to 13. Christ, righteousness, everyone, and either faith or believe. And so, as we work our way through this, we're going to see three really important truths about salvation. One, that it's not through the law. Two, that it is through faith. Three, that it's offered to all who believe. Verse 5, it's not through the law. He says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Now he's quoting where he's referring back to Leviticus 18.5. In fact, I'll just go back there and read to you exactly what Moses wrote. Leviticus 18.5 says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So God promised eternal life to any man who would perfectly obey his law. Who would perfectly keep his commandments. Of course, and, and then he, he also says that, um, so you live if you keep them, well, that tells us that if you don't keep them, you what? You die. So death is the penalty for not keeping all of them. Life is the reward for keeping all of them. So all you have to do to avoid death is just perfectly keep the law. Of course, the problem is nobody has ever been able to do that except for Jesus Christ. Because we're born fallen, we're born predisposed towards sin, rebellion to God. So it's theoretically correct that this could be true, but it's practically impossible. Uh, Paul even says in Galatians 3 verse 10, that uh, cursed is every man who does not abide. Well, I'm just going to read it because I'll, I won't get it right. Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse... For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. There's two words you need to think about. All and abide. So, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things. All the law. It's not good enough that you just don't break this law. You have to keep all the law and you have to abide by those things. Meaning you have to continue to keep them your whole life. From the time you're born till the time you die, you have to keep perfectly all of God's law. And if you don't, you're under a curse. The curse is eternal death. 
So that was the problem of the Jew. He was seeking to establish his own righteousness, which was based on law-keeping, but he was doomed to failure. He would never, ever be saved that way. And the Jew was ignorant of God's way of righteousness. Paul was trying to expound to them, to the Jew. This is God's way of righteousness. It comes as a gift by grace. Receive it through faith. And they were saying, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to work hard. And God will reward me with life. But they were deceived. So, first of all, salvation is not through the law. Two, salvation is through faith. And Paul takes the, the major chunk of what he's going to say here to describe this aspect, that salvation is through faith. And he takes verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 to develop this idea. Notice the emphasis on faith here. Verse 6, the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Or verse 8, for what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Or verse 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe, there's the synonym for faith, believe in your heart. Or verse 10, for with a heart a person believes. Or verse 11, for the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And we can even take verse 12 and 13 because to call on the name of the Lord is simply another way of talking about faith being expressed. He says in verse 12, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So faith is laced throughout this entire section as the way of salvation. Not law, faith. Now, there's various aspects of faith that Paul emphasizes here. First of all, it's faith in what Christ has accomplished. And that comes out in verses 6, 7, and 8, which might seem really confusing to you, because verses 6, 7, and 8 have always sounded confusing to me. <laughs> but I'll try to, well, let's read it first again, and then I'll try to boil it down to the main point. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And now he's quoting Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 14, which in its context was talking about the commandment. Paul changes it and talks about Christ in place of the commandment. So he adjusts and modifies this Old Testament commandment to fit what he wants to communicate to the Romans. But here is what, what he says. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. So to boil all this down, I believe what Paul is trying to get at is the word of faith by which a man is made right with God is not something that is distant and complicated and inaccessible, but it's close to you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. And this word of faith isn't that you have to somehow go into heaven and drag Christ down to save you, to die on the cross for you. And this word of faith doesn't teach that you have to descend into the abyss and bring Christ up from the dead. Christ already came down, right? God already sent him down in the incarnation. And he already was raised from the dead in the resurrection. So you don't have to bring Christ down because he's already come down. You don't have to raise him from the dead because he's already been raised. In other words, there's nothing you have to do. It's already been done by him. 
So this faith is faith in what Christ has accomplished. His incarnation, he came into the world being sent by the Father. His resurrection, after dying on the cross for sins, he was raised mightily from the dead. And so the gospel doesn't require us necessarily to do something. It tells us about everything which has already been done and invites us to receive what has been done by faith. To receive it as a gift from God. D.L. Moody, who was a great evangelist of the 1800s, was preaching in a crusade once. And, you know, he would go into a town and preach for days and days on end, but eventually they would leave and pack up and go to another town. And that's what he was doing in this situation. He had completed the number of days he was in a particular town. All of his workers were tearing down the chairs and dismantling the platform. And a man rushes up to D.L. Moody and says, Mr. Moody, what must I do to be saved? You see, he had postponed giving his life to Christ for all those meetings. He just sat there and listened and didn't do anything. He didn't commit himself to Christ. He said, Mr. Moody, what can I do to be saved? And Moody replied, I'm sorry, sir, but you're too late. He says, the man, the man cries out in desperation, too late, surely I'm not too late. And Moody says, yes, sir, you're too late. As a matter of fact, you're 2,000 years too late if you are trying to do something to be saved. All the doing has been done. But if you would like to receive Christ as your Savior, you're just in time. You can do that right here, right now. Wise words. All the doing to accomplish salvation has totally been done by Jesus Christ. It's a finished work completed in the past. But we do need to receive what Christ has done. And we do that through faith. Once Moody was listening to an old preacher and they were having a conversation. And the preacher told him, I've learned three things in the last 42 years. And Moody pricked up his ears and he thought, if I could find out in three minutes what a man had taken 42 years to learn, I'd like to do it. And so the preacher said, one, I can do nothing to save myself. Two, God does not require me to do anything to save myself. Three, Jesus Christ has done it all. Salvation is finished and all I have to do is receive what he accomplished. I believe that's really the nuts and bolts of what Paul is trying to get across in this section. We don't bring Christ down. We don't bring him up from the abyss. All the work has been completed. The word of faith is close to us. It's in our mouth and in our heart. And then he goes on to say in verse 9 and 10 how we express that faith to him. So the message of the law is do and live. The message of the gospel is believe and live. See, there's quite a difference between the two, between law and gospel. Rather than do and live, the truth really is we live and then we do. We're brought to life. And then we can do. And we, we ought to do and we should do good works, many good works. But those follow the new life that God gives to us as Christians. They don't attain the life that we need. The preacher Harry Ironside, who was... Uh, pastor in Chicago for many years. He was once out on the streets preaching and he had all these hecklers and um, the hecklers would come and one of these hecklers said uh, there's hundreds of religions. Each one believes that theirs is the only right religion. How can a poor plain man like me find out the truth? And Ironside shot back hundreds. I've heard of only two. One covers all who expect salvation by doing the other by something done. The whole question is very simple. Can you save yourself 
or must you be saved by another? There's two kinds of religions in the world. There's only two. Those who expect salvation uh, as a gift of grace and those who expect to do in order to achieve somehow. And it might be all kinds of things. It might be prayer. It might be fasting. It might be good works. It might be scripture reading. But it's, you boil that religion down and salvation is accomplished through doing. And then there's one other religion and that is salvation that has been done and accomplished and we receive it through faith. And that's the script, that's the religion of the Bible. That's pure Christianity. So the first thing Paul tells us here about faith is it's faith in the finished work of Christ and what Christ has accomplished. Secondly, it's faith in the risen Lord. Not just the crucified Savior, but the risen Lord. Because he says in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The word Lord here is the Greek word kurios. It has a range of meaning. It's kind of like in Spanish you have the word Señor and that word can mean Sir, can't it? Yes. You guys who speak Spanish, right? It means Sir or it can mean like a master. Is that correct? Okay, but it can also mean God, right? And that's exactly the same as this word kurios. It can mean Sir, it can mean master, like the word that a slave would use for the one who owned him. So he referred to him as master. It can also refer to God. The, the, the word kurios is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. So that Greek word kurios is used many, many times to translate the word Jehovah of the Old Testament. So when Paul says here, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, it contains the idea of Jesus as being master and also Jesus as being God, creator. Jehovah of the Old Testament. Jesus is both master and God. So, in, in Paul's day, in various places the, the emperor of Rome would enact laws whereby the people had to uh, burn a little piece of incense and confess Caesar is Lord. But the people in those days, the Christians, wouldn't do that. Because for them that was, that was blasphemy. Only, there was only one Lord, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was master, he was God, and they would only worship him. And some of them lost their lives in the first century because they would not acknowledge Caesar to be Lord. It's interesting that he says you must confess Christ as Lord. He doesn't say you must confess Christ as Savior. And I did some searches. In the New Testament, I searched for the word Savior. It appears 24 times in the New American Standard Bible. And many of those times it's actually talking about God the Father being Savior. Sometimes it's referring to Jesus. 15 times it refers to Jesus, about 9 times to God the Father. So we have 24 references to God being Savior. 653 times it refers, we find the word Lord in the New Testament. The emphasis in the New Testament is not Jesus as Savior, although He is. But as we see here, we're not told to confess Jesus as Savior, we're told to confess Jesus as Lord. If you go through the book of Acts, Jesus is referred to as Savior twice. He's referred to Lord as over a hundred times. It's a slam dunk in terms of the weight, the biblical weight of what we are to be confessing Christ as. And I find that disturbing because you have whole sections of Christianity, mostly in America, 
because we have such a watered-down gospel here in America, but mostly here where people will teach you, and they'll teach dogmatically that you can be saved and on your way to heaven if you just confess Christ as your Savior, if you just believe in Him as your Savior, you don't have to submit to Him as your Lord, just believe in Him as your Savior. Paul says in verse 9, you must confess Him as your Lord to be saved. I mean, I don't see how it can get any clearer. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the people that teach that you don't have to confess Christ as Lord, just believe in him as your Savior, they're going against the word of God. Paul makes it very clear, Jesus must be Savior or he's not, I mean he must be Lord or he is not your Savior. You can profess that he's your Savior all you want to. It doesn't matter. Unless there's a heart surrender to him, willing to obey his commands, you're not, he isn't your Savior. He must be Lord to be Savior. And the second thing he says, you must believe that God raised him from the dead. Now interestingly, he doesn't focus on the cross here either. He doesn't say you have to believe that Christ died for your sins. Of course, you do need to believe that, but what Paul focuses on here is the resurrection from the dead. Now, of course, if he was raised from the dead, that means that he was dead, <laughs> right? And so he, he's assuming the cross, but just the cross alone and faith in what Christ did at the cross is not enough. You must also believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which was what disturbed me so much when I had a private conversation with my son a few years back and he told me he wasn't sure whether Jesus even rose from the dead. I instantly thought of this verse and thought, well, he can't be saved unless he believes that Jesus rose from the dead. This is salvation matter. There's some things in the Bible that are not salvation issues. This is a salvation issue. You can't be saved unless you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, according to the Apostle Paul. Back in Exodus chapter 12, we have the story of the Passover. And in the story of the Passover, they were to take a lamb per household, and they were to roast it and stay within doors while the destroying angel went through the land, and they were to consume, eat the entire lamb. If they couldn't eat it all, they were to burn it. They were to burn what was left of it, but they were to consume the entire lamb. And I find that a helpful picture. When we receive Jesus Christ, you don't get to pick and choose which parts of Christ you want to receive. It's not like when there's a big bowl of salad on the table and you take some and then you take all the peas and the carrots and the tomatoes out and you eat all the stuff you like. When you become a Christian, you have to eat the whole salad. <laughs> Jesus is not just Savior, He's also Lord. And if you're going to receive Him as Savior, you have to receive Him in all of His offices. You can't split him up and say, I'll take this third of Jesus and leave out the other two thirds. He doesn't allow you to do that. You have to receive him on his terms. The, the Puritan Thomas Shepard wrote this. He was an English Puritan of the 1600s. He said, what does God offer in the gospel? Is it not first Christ and then all the benefits of Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ must be received in his whole mediatorial office as Savior and Lord, as prophet, priest, and king. For never did any man take Jesus Christ excuse me, savingly, who took him not for a husband and a Lord, to serve, love, and obey forever after, as well as a Savior to disburden him of his sins, as a king to govern him by his word and spirit, as well as a priest to wash him in his blood. In other words, he's saying the same thing we're saying. When you become a Christian, 
you, you receive Jesus for who Jesus is, not for who you want him to be, for who he actually is. So the faith that saves is a faith in what Christ has accomplished. It's a faith in the risen Lord. And then thirdly, it's faith from the heart. Because he says in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. Let's just meditate on that word heart. If you study the word in the Bible, see we have different, a different meaning for what we think heart is than what it was expressed in scripture. When we think of heart, we think of emotion, we think of affection. Now it does include that, but that's not the whole range of what the word heart meant in the Bible. It meant your mind, and it meant your will as well. It was the whole inner person when they talked about the heart. The mind, the emotions, and the will. And Paul says that we must believe from the heart. We must believe from the mind. We must have accurate historical information about Jesus the Christ. We must, must believe that he was born, lived a righteous life, died a substitutionary death, was risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. So with the mind we believe, we also use the heart in terms of the emotions, right? There are certain emotions that all of that brings up. Emotions of joy and, and grief over our sin and emotions of thankfulness and love and all of that is part of it. But there's also the will. Mind, emotion, and will. And when you believe from the heart, it means you're making a commitment of your life to Him. The will is making a decision to follow Jesus. Like the old song, I have decided to follow Jesus. There's a personal commitment that is made to Christ as Lord. That is part of this faith that we exercise in Him. There's an old adage that goes, If on Jesus Christ you trust, speak for Him you surely must. And that's expressed in the second part of verse 9. It's not only faith in the risen Lord and faith from the heart, but it's faith expressed through confession. Because he says we must confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord. If you go back to verse 8, notice how Paul ties mouth and heart, mouth and heart, mouth and heart together over and over and over. Verse 8 says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Or verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So when a person is saved, there must, must be both the mouth and the heart. Mouth and heart. Mouth confesses, heart believes. Those two things go together like hand and glove. Believing precedes confession. And believe, believing produces confession. But confession without believing is hypocrisy. And believing without confession is self-deception. God requires both belief and confession. Mouth and heart. Confession is the natural consequence of a new birth. So... Sometimes people say, yes, I believe, I've become a Christian, but they refuse to confess that. I mean, they won't get baptized. They won't tell anybody else that they're a Christian 
and that they have been converted, they won't talk to people, you'd have to question that person's conversion if they're unwilling to confess to anybody else their faith. Especially if they're unwilling to be baptized because Christ commanded that. And in baptism we confess to others that Christ is now my Lord and my Savior. So it's a, it's a faith expressed through confession. Let's go back over those one more time. It's a faith in what Christ has accomplished. It's a faith in the risen Lord. It's a faith from the heart. And it's a faith expressed through confession. And then the last area that he, he, uh, he mentions here in verses 11 to 13 is that salvation is offered to all who believe. Let's just read through and just notice certain words. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I just circled all these phrases with a red pen in my Bible. Whoever, no distinction, all, all, whoever. He's using the most all-inclusive language that he can. Whoever, all, no distinction, Jew, Greek, everyone. He's saying salvation is offered to all people that hear this gospel. If they're willing to believe, salvation's theirs. That's the human condition. You must believe upon Jesus Christ. It's thrown open to all in the world and saying, come, come to Christ, believe on him. God offers you salvation. And you're probably thinking, I'm just... Um, negating everything I taught you in Romans chapter 9 <laughs> by saying that. And I'm, I'm not going to try to fix the tension between chapter 10 and chapter 9 because I can't anyway. <laughs> but I'm just going to try to teach the text. And the text says it's open and available to any man who believes regardless of nationality, regardless of birth, regardless of gender. It doesn't matter who you are. If you believe upon the Son of God, you'll be saved. He says in verse 11, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. He's quoting here from Isaiah 28, 16. And when he mentions being disappointed, he's talking about being disillusioned. In other words, you believe and then what you believe for doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you think that some, think if you believe you're going to have everlasting life and then you're disappointed and disillusioned because you end up in hell. Well, that'll never happen, he says. You'll never be disappointed if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. God won't let you down. God is faithful to the promises of his word that he makes. We can trust him to be faithful. And then he says in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's this idea of calling on His name. Calling on the Lord. I believe this calling on the Lord is an expression of faith. You believe that God is merciful. You believe the gospel, which is the good news that even though you're anxious about your own sin and guilt. You believe that this gospel is true and that if you cast yourself on the mercy of God, He'll bestow righteousness on you and He'll give, bestow this mercy on you. It's, it's like the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
That was an expression of faith. And God saved him. He went to his home justified rather than the other. So this is the man who knows he's under God's displeasure. He knows he's under God's wrath because of his own sin and shame and guilt. He's headed for eternal judgment, but he hears the good news and he believes that it's true and he cries out to this God to have mercy on his soul. And God does. And he saves him. And then notice this expression, abounding in riches. In verse 12. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Now what kind of riches is he talking about? He's abounding in riches. I believe he's talking about spiritual and eternal riches. He's not talking about earthly riches. This might be a verse that the Word of Faith people, the prosperity gospel people would like to choose. <laughs> But I, I really don't believe it has anything to do with earthly riches. In the Old Testament, it would have. God promised earthly blessing if they would obey His commandments. He promised, you know, that the women would not miscarry and they'd have children and that they'd have plenty of crops and flocks and all of that stuff. In the New Testament, that's not promised to us under the New Covenant. We're promised spiritual riches. And I thought it would be helpful for us just to do a, a quick New Testament survey using the word rich or riches and see what those riches are because I was delighted to find out what riches he's talking about so let's do that let's do a quick survey we're gonna start in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 Paul says or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance riches of kindness tolerance tolerance and patience okay chapter 9 verse 23 and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory kindness tolerance patience and now glory these are all included in God's riches we can go to a chapter 11 of Romans verse 33 oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways now we add two more Wisdom of God and knowledge of God are part of these riches. And then if you go to Ephesians 1, verse 7. It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Or if you go to chapter 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. There's another one. Or chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Or if you go to chapter 3, verse 16. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So let me sum up what the New Testament describes as the riches of God. Glory, grace, kindness, Tolerance, patience, wisdom, knowledge, and mercy. Now, what's significant about all those words? What are they? Yes. They're gifts for us. Yes. And 
where are they displayed? Where do we find those qualities? In God, in Christ, right? They're his own attributes. These are the traits of God himself. So when God gives us riches, God is abounding in riches for all who call upon him and he lets us have some of these riches. What he's giving to us is himself. He's giving us his glory, his grace, his kindness, his tolerance, his patience, his wisdom, his knowledge. Everything that makes God God, he shares with us because we brought into union with God. You see, the Bible teaches that our everlasting inheritance is not some like, you know, mansion over here that's got <laughs> gold streets and pearls or whatever. The, the inheritance that God gives you is himself. Christ Jesus is our inheritance our everlasting inheritance, and the attributes that flow from God are the riches that he's going to bestow upon us for all eternity. We're going to see and understand and enjoy him more and more as the ages of eternity just roll one upon another like waves of the sea. So praise God, for all who call on him, he abounds in riches. And these are not just riches that we get to enjoy in heaven, or on the new earth one day, but we can start to enjoy those riches now as Christians. The new birth enables you to appreciate and love and enjoy who God is. Before that, we didn't even care. You know, we didn't have a heart. We didn't have a spiritual taste buds for the things of God, but those have been given to us in the new birth. That's why Judas left Jesus because <laughs> and he had no spiritual relish for Christ. He, he, won, he wanted money. He thought that Christ could do something for him. But there wasn't that same heart enjoyment of the Lord. Um, so to boil all this down, salvation is not for those who try. It's for those who trust. It's not for those who behave. It's for those who believe. And so we need to cease from our efforts and trust in God's work. And any who will come and rest in Christ's finished work can be saved. I want to conclude with a lengthy quote from one of my favorite men from church history, George Whitfield, who I gave a talk on a couple years ago. He was once preaching a sermon called um, Christ's Everlasting Righteousness. And try to imagine him out in the fields. He might have been in England or he might have been in America. But he was, he was a field preacher. He would bring this little three-foot little step stool. He'd get up on there, and he would preach, and thousands upon thousands of people would assemble to hear him, which is my mind. I can't even understand that. Like, you try to do that today, and they all walk away. In his day, they all flocked <laughs> to hear him. But anyway, try to imagine Whitfield standing on this little stool, thousands of people around him. There's no microphones. He's lifting up his voice. His voice is the amplifier. And he says, Are any of you depending upon a righteousness of your own? Do any of you here think to save yourselves by your own doings? I say to you, your righteousness shall surely perish with you. Poor, miserable creatures, what is there in your tears? What in your prayers? What in your performances to appease the wrath of an angry God? Away from the trees of the garden, come ye guilty wretches, come as poor, lost, undone, and wretched creatures, and accept of a better righteousness than your own. As I said before, so I tell you again, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is an everlasting righteousness. It is wrought out for the very chief of sinners. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, let him come and drink of this water of life freely. Are any of you wounded by sin? Do any of you feel you have no righteousness of your own? 
Are any of you perishing for hunger? Are any of you afraid you will perish forever? Come, dear souls, in all your rags. Come, thou poor man. Come, thou poor, distressed woman. You who think God will never forgive you and that your sins are too great to be forgiven. Come, thou doubting creature who art afraid thou wilt never get comfort. Arise, take comfort. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, the Lord of glory calls for thee. Oh, let not one poor soul stand at a distance from the Savior. Oh, come, come. Now since it is brought into the world by Christ, so in the name, in the strength, and by the assistance of the great God, I bring it now to the pulpit. I now offer this righteousness, this free, this imputed, this everlasting righteousness to all poor sinners who will accept of it. Think, I pray you, therefore, on these things. Go home. Go home. Go home. Isn't it interesting he didn't tell them to come to the front? He had no, there was no altar call. It hadn't been invented in his day. Nobody used an altar call. He said, go home, go home, go home. Pray over the text and say, Lord God, thou hast brought an everlasting righteousness into the world by the Lord Jesus Christ. By the blessed spirit, bring it into my heart. Then die when you will, you are safe. If it be tomorrow, you shall be immediately translated into the presence of the everlasting God. That will be sweet. Happy they who have got this robe on. Happy they that can say, My God hath loved me, and I shall be loved by him with an everlasting love. That every one of you may be able to say so. May God grant for the sake of Jesus Christ, the dear Redeemer, to whom be glory forever. Amen. That was the way he concluded his sermon. Come and accept of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because you have none that God can accept in your, in your own self. So brothers and sisters, I just want to urge you, share this good news of a free and full salvation. When we witness to people, we're not telling them, do this and do that and do the other, and maybe God will accept you if you try hard enough. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ has accomplished salvation. Come and accept of it. Believe upon him. Receive that gift that he offers by grace. And if you're not saved today, that's what I'm urging you to do. Believe. <coughs> Believe. Receive. Take the gift of salvation from Christ. Because God has his hands open wide offering that gift today. One day it'll be too late. He'll withdraw his hand and he will come in judgment. But now his hands are open. The gift is available. In order to take something out of the hand of Christ, you've got to empty whatever's in yours. Like a little kid, if his hands are full of, of candies, and you offer him a thousand dollars, you know, he's, he's never going to drop the candy, because he values the candy. You've got to drop. And what, what is in everybody's hands right now? It's their own sin. And that's, what re, that's why repentance is necessary. You can't take the gift if your hands are full of sin and unwilling to let go. So you have to be willing to let go of this in order to have something better. And God offers it all. He offers his riches. So trust him now. If there's anybody here who is not a, a Christian, trust him right now and you'll be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you've made salvation simple and accessible. Thank you, Lord, that the promises that all who call upon your name, that they'll be saved. And so, Lord, move upon hearts 
to call upon your name, whether it's now in this room or people watching on Facebook Live or Lord, people that hear this on the radio or when we take this message to the streets or to other people that we know and we urge them, Lord, would you cause your word to reap fruit and may, may there be a harvest of souls for Jesus' sake. Amen.